I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I have with me today, Dr. Janelle Piper. Did I say that correctly? You did, yeah. Should have checked on that beforehand. I have Dr. Janelle Piper. She's a PhD. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychology at Agnes Scott here in Atlanta. And she's a specialist in trauma and identity formation. Um, and she works a lot with uh, postpartum families uh, and helping them cope with the changes of having um, new little ones in the house. And um, she's just an overall amazing woman, and I'm so excited to have you here today. So I know I just sort of introduced you, but could you tell uh, those who are listening a little bit more about yourself and your interest in, in um, inequities and, and mental health? Yeah, thank you so much, Jill. Um, I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation. Um, I think it's timely and it's gonna become increasingly important as, um, as we continue further in this crisis. Um, so a little bit more on me, you did a great job summing it up. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a small group practice here in Decatur in the Atlanta area. Um, I'm also an assistant professor and a researcher. A lot of my work focuses on how people connect across differences, so really relevant to this um, mm. and the developmental process of how people come to know themselves as cultural beings and explore their identity, and also how they connect with others who they perceive as different, again, across some of the separations and barriers that we see get built up over time. Um, and I also look at the transition into new parenthood and do research on that and the impact that that has um, psychologically and on people's functioning. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to think about how we can be proactive in addressing some of the concerns that we know are likely to be amplified um, when it comes to inequities, when it comes to these historically marginalized identities and how that intersects with the mental health impact of this pandemic. I'm so fat. I like, I want to get into this connecting across differences with you. I want to just like completely side rail this, this interview, but we'll do that on a different time because yes. I'm, I'm so fascinated um, by how, how, I mean, I was just, I was telling you about an article that a, a friend of mine, an op-ed that she just wrote in the New York times. I just read it this morning and hope like completely blown away. And she was talking about how some of her neighborhood like groups are blacklisting businesses that decide to reopen now. Um, right now it's May 1st. So it's like businesses in Georgia are just starting to reopen and, and other places too. Like really nice, otherwise nice people are just like not having it. Like it's turned into this like political divide almost. So, and it's not any nicer on the judgmental side. So this connecting across differences is very, very yeah. relevant. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk a little bit, but we're, we're not going to talk about that right now. More, Can you on, talk, that <laughs> more on that later. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, mental health issues before COVID? Mm -hmm. um, not it, let's let's focus on on marginalized uh, society uh, members of society, um, but also just mental health in general. What are some difficulties that people face uh, in terms of getting access? Mm -hmm. um, maybe in terms of of stigma um, and how 
and so start with the kind of the, the background, what, what it's generally baseline like, maybe some of the things people don't think about who don't have, other than maybe some mild depression or anxiety, which everyone seems to have, and myself, I've, I've had some without myself, but what are some of the things that we don't really think about um, even before COVID? Yeah. So thinking about, yeah, we really need to know the situation that we were walking into before this all happened. Like what, what was already there? And what we know is that that inequity shows up in a few different ways. Um, and I'll start off at like the closest, like the most proximal level, that immediate individual level. Um, we know that within individuals, those who've experienced marginalization based on their identity. So that might be people who are queer, people who are black, people of color, um, religious minorities or like historically like prosecuted minorities in their um, environment or people who have non-conforming gender identities, um, particularly those or lower socioeconomic status, particularly if they have multiple identities that intersect, mm -hmm. um, that they were experiencing more stress and strain. Um, uh, by having to cope with the weight of some of the othering, some of the microaggressions, racism, both at an individual and systemic level, um, that that shows up like very much so even in our DNA. Like we've found that it's heritable, like carrying that trauma of like having to have that awareness, being um, hypervigilant over time, like just actually like impacts us on a physiological level. Um, and so that was at the individual level, you had individuals who were under stress and strain. Um, to compound that, you had less access to care. So within my like professional community, only about 5% of psychologists are black. Um, so, and when you look across the marginalized, historically marginalized identity, it's pretty uniform. There's just low representation. So if people were looking to come in for treatment, particularly around these issues where they want it to be heard, seen and validated on that, they were finding a hard time to find people who they assumed looked like them or could understand their life experience. Mm -hmm. um, like, so that already was a barrier in some ways that people weren't even seeking or thinking that that care was for them or that it could be for them. Um, so when it came to accessing care, it was more difficult. When you compound other things like socioeconomic status and like being in a rural community or in a community with lower access to these providers um, or even working in an environment where getting out of work to be able to go to see a therapist in the middle of the day just isn't going to fly, like um, to be able to take the Atlanta to get to and from if you have an hour session and you have to commute an hour both ways, three hour chunk, that's like pretty much reserved for professionals, right? Um, <laughs> And so thinking about that, there wasn't that access. Um, and then, the, of course, there's like the historical stigma that comes from a really good place. Like psychologists and researchers did some pretty horrible experiments mm. um, within our lifetime, like eugenics, like in the last hundred years was like a thing, you know, that people were being systemically sterilized for um, things that were like considered to be um, un, un, uh, undesirable traits. Um, like um, intellectual disabilities, um, you know, even um, sexual identity. So this mistrust when people are like, oh, the stigma, they think about, oh, these communities just don't talk about, they think that it's something, but it's really well rooted. Your grandparents were telling you about times where people were going in to see providers who were sterilizing them. Um, so that mistrust isn't just because, oh, we're too tough, we don't think we need mental health care. They're like frightened of providers and have been just like very um, dismissed, 
um, and not seen in the interventions that were developed and the research that was done, um, many of whom are taking a deficit-only approach and any conversations around race are from this position of less than. Um, so there isn't a lot like that people feel drawn to. So you had those sort of underlying barriers. Um, and then of course, insurance reimbursement is a big part of that and access to healthcare. Um, if you have excellent private insurance, you have a like or are able to self-pay you have a menu of different wonderful providers who you can choose from um but if you don't have that same access then you have a lot of limitations huge wait list um and it, particularly in communities where it is harder to get away up until this point um pro uh, insurance providers were not payers were not covering teletherapy they weren't covering these unique models that can make it much more accessible much more wide-reaching so like all of this is in together in like this mental health kind of like pre-existing stew and like making it such that these communities were getting less service were getting less care okay so it's already super hard. Can you talk about what othering means? Because you use that word and I think I could probably figure out what it means, but I'd love to know what it actually means. Yes, let's talk about othering. Um, so othering is that sense of like disconnection from another person's experience. The ability to kind of look at them as separate and other, which in this pandemic is like highlighted tenfold. So even the realist, like people's, the slow, response by individuals and leaders to recognize that this virus could come to them. Um, so this idea of seeing it as, oh, this is something that's happening in China. They're so different. Their society is so different. This couldn't reach us. And then as it got closer to the shores, being like, no, now it's just going into these communities. And then once it hit Italy, people are like, oh, okay, Italy. And it kind of got closer and closer to identities that felt empathetically like available to people. Um, I think that there is a temptation oftentimes with like a lot of these conversations is to keep a barrier from suffering and to take some of like the weight of personal responsibility away by thinking about how is this something that's happening to somebody else and that's not impacting me. And part of what like as a scientist and as a clinician, this um, pandemic offers a wonderful opportunity to really dispute that idea that there is, that these are these separations. Like our experiences are interconnected um, so deeply. Like, especially I've talked a lot of times about people who are, have the ability and the privilege to stay home. Your experience in health is tied to the ability to the frontline workers to be able to do their work. Like if you're, and it sort of makes concrete something that was already there to begin with, that there are a lot of attempts to this individualism and the separatism that it's about me and what I do. It's not about what happens in my community, but we recognize now that and more than ever that it's very much systemic and what happens to the like the least empowered of us will come to the most empowered of us it like eventually um and impact us even if it's like not only just altruistically or morally or ethically although i think those are important too but in really pragmatic and like lived concrete ways that's interesting so othering is almost like you commit othering you're not mm -hmm. a victim of othering i mean you're a victim of it but othering is the act of yeah pushing okay okay that that's a really interesting term and i'm surprised i haven't really heard it yet yeah. um but it's it, it makes so much sense it's like everything our whole society is about is like that's for other people not me 
yep, that's not me. And you can think, you can see how it really is meant to reduce anxiety about the uncertainty yeah. of the chaos and sometimes the unlike fairness of the world. You look for, like we know in social psychology that people look for intrinsic descriptions of other people's struggle and external ones for their own. So, and for those who they relate to. So for instance, if you see somebody who is currently without stable housing, you look at them and you say, that's because that can't happen to me because that person is other and they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't, um, you know, they might struggle with substance use and that's them. And it kind of keeps that suffering for at a distance. Um, whereas you look at yourself and you're like, oh, I might be struggling right now because I'm under a lot of like, like stress from my boss. These things out of my control are happening. Um, and we even see that now in like the response to the pandemic, like people are getting to that point where they're like, oh, this is happening more in, you know, Hispanic and black communities, it's happening more to the people who are already sick or the people who are elderly or have chronic illness. Like, so this is not me. I'm, I, this is something else. I'm, uh, yeah, I think my mind is just blown right now. It's just very, that's our whole, yeah, that's how everything is seen. And, and until like you're like naked, cling in a storm like clinging to the foundation of your burned down house like you're gonna yes. other, basically like yes is othering something that people do even if they're marginalized like do marginalized people marginal like other other people or is it yeah. just something that people with privilege do well I'm this is actually I'm working on a paper right now that's about this in a lot of ways um it, it looks like these layers of historically marginalized identities in this intersectional way um and the relationship with empathy um, and so the idea that like um, the antidote often to othering is empathy and like allowing in like the shared like experience and like those shared moments where you're like, okay, this is about, you know, us like together. Um, and what we find is that it does, I mean, it definitely happens like within marginalized communities, it happens to all of us. We're all vulnerable to it. There's a temptation to want to put up a barrier between suffering as much as possible. And it comes from an adaptive place. Like it's a lot to live with the like frailty of our human existence. Like right. psychologically, we can't hold that often. So we find ways to defend against it um, and find ways to try to not be in constant psychological distress about that, you know? Um, so I'm not saying, I don't, it doesn't come from a place where it's like, you're a bad person, so you do this. Um, but, it, so everybody does it. Um, but the, what we do know is that those with historically marginalized identities, um, are, at least in this research study that I'm working on right now, that we see higher levels of empathy. Um, that because, and my hypothesis on that is that it's just a readiness of different cognitive frameworks and schemas that you're able to overlay. So like we've seen in the literature that people, for instance, who um, were in um, like multiracial marriages were more able to be empathetic about same-sex marriages, for instance, because they're like, I can understand what that felt like for me to like, you know, be in, in I think, yeah, like Georgia or Mississippi was like one that like in the last like, you know, like 50 or 70 years allowed it, you know, like they have like, they're like, oh, I can understand what that was like for me. So I can really, it's not too much of a leap for that to hit me empathetically. Um, but yeah, but everyone does it. But there is some suggestion that having that framework of wondering, of understanding what it feels like might make it more accessible for you to be able to empathize with others. Sure. Okay. I like that. So the, the, the antidote is empathy. That's beautiful. So, okay, so now bring in COVID. How is that worsening, magnifying? We've already got into it a little bit. Um, yeah. how, how is that um, 
magnifying the uh, a just the mental health issues themselves. How is that magnifying people's um, people's own struggles, but then also the access? Yeah. Yes. Um, so in terms of particularly like thinking about those who are from historically marginalized identities, I think at like this macro scale, there's this ongoing stress that all of us are experiencing. Um, and regardless of who you are, you're experiencing it at some level, like, and this ongoing constant sort of like fight or flight trying to engage whether you're you know thinking about this at an economic devastation level uh, like health or both and you're trying to wrap your mind over this like huge reworking that takes a toll like and it's a strain mm -hmm. um some other some people have more access to privilege and resources to be able to cope with that strain um and to figure out healthy like ways to be able to engage with and have like the time the space the resources to be able to cope through that um, so that is definitely the case that you, it's kind of undeniable that we're in a highly stressed situation. Um, but that's going to hit people in different ways. Those who have more socioeconomic resources, who have more space, like even like at a very simple level, like we talk about like stay at home in yards. Like, so people who are like, why isn't everybody just staying at home? Like everybody should just stay in their home and their children should play in their yards, you know? Um, and, and then people having to remind you, like some people you're talking about staying at home. What do you think is the psychological difference of staying at home in a one bedroom apartment um, with like a, somebody, you know, who is, um, has like a, a partner who has a substance use disorder, uh, trying to go to your essential work job when the schools have closed. Like the idea that this is like a completely different uh, experience based on your identity, based on the life that you're living. Um, and that those who are like historically marginalized or currently like experiencing that um, are going to experience stress and strain in a different way. Um, and then to boot, there's less like access and um, like templates for um, like empathetic coping around that um, and constant barrage of messages about like, you know, yeah, that idea that you're less than, like I'm talking a lot with like individuals who are experiencing ageism pretty badly, like recognizing like, what does it feel like to feel expendable like to people? Um, what does it feel like to come from? Like we don't often think about age as a historically marginalized identity, but it definitely is in our society. Like, and you can see in that conversation where people are like, oh, it's just happening to older people. And you're looking at like people who are 65 and like, you know, 70 being like, so that, you know, that makes it better. Um, and so, and we also, we know that we're seeing much heightened rates of like anxiety, depression, upticks in um, domestic violence, um, and child abuse in some ways we're seeing like lower reports for child abuse which is a red flag for us um and it's really concerning um and just really especially as we're getting into like this next phase of the pandemic and like what does it look like when you're like now we're just in this brave new world and individuals like may or may not have developed the like tools to engage with it we're just anticipating that there's going to be a lot of stress and strain um, and also a lot of folks aren't accessing mental health resources at this moment. So like when I talk with my peers and we've been like having a lot of conversations about the fact that like our referrals are just really, really down. Um, so people aren't coming and so you're looking around and almost everybody I know is like, you guys must be so busy right now. And I'm like, for our current clients, yes. Um, 
For incoming clients, no. Like there's clearly this environment where people must be under stress and strain. All of these things are popping up and people aren't coming in for like therapy. Um, new people aren't coming in as much. Um, so there's that question as well. Are people getting the support they need? Yeah, well, I can imagine, I can try to imagine if you're living at home mm-hmm. with in a one bedroom apartment with an abusive spouse and a kid and you're an essential worker, you have to have A, the internet to have mm-hmm. these telesessions. B, you have to have privacy where you can talk about it and feel safe in your house. And if that person's in the house with you, you don't feel safe. So I can imagine that that is also contributing to that a lot. Like, where do you find, it's like different than like, oh, I have a runny nose or, uh, you know, I like my leg hurts. Doctor, help me. It's like this person in the other room in the kitchen yeah. listening is, is threatening. So, um, so much to think about here. Um, how, how can, what resources do people have for anyone listening who is going through, I mean, I can imagine OCD, anxiety, depression, all these things are flaring up. Are there, do you think like other diseases like, like, like schizophrenia, bipolar, like what, what is getting worse right now? Do you think because of COVID and, and what are resources people, what are things people can do at home? if they aren't able to access their uh, yeah. healthcare, mental health professionals? And also what are things like resources, hotlines, yeah. numbers that people can look, look for? Definitely. Um, so yes, so like pretty much all mental health concerns are exacerbated by stress. So like we often like take like an epigenetic approach even to like the expression of mental illness. Um, mm-hmm or um, like mental health concerns in that you may have like a genetic predisposition or just sort of like at a neuroanatom like anatomic level, like some differences that make you susceptible, but that it doesn't express unless you're under a lot of stress or strain, right? Like that you um, might not see that. Um, and so of course now like that stress could exacerbate like the expression of these um, or the worsening of these sort of concerns. And then to boot on the other side of it, a lot of the things that would typically help you cope are not accessible to you. So as we would be thinking about like behavioral activation, social support, like connection with others, they're a lot harder to access to utilize. So it's kind of like this twofer where it's like stress exacerbates the expression over the severity of mm-hmm. and then the other side a lot of the resources that people would normally cope are less like accessible more difficult so of course we'd expect to see some of a worsening um, of these sort of mental health concerns um so yes that's the bad news um the good news is though that there is the opportunity for engagement with different coping mechanisms that may have been more difficult to access before so i mean this like for you like jill like for all my clients who I'm working with now, we're using some form of like mindfulness, like Mm -hmm. they're engaging in some sort of like meditation. And that's a hugely important skill set to have, particularly in times where there are things that are significant, giant outside of your control and finding ways to be able to cope and center yourself in the moment, like, and be able to flow through, like, or engage with the unpredictability and stress and strain that keeps coming up. Um, and then also for in terms of crisis resources, um, a lot of the crisis lines have um, 
change their functioning to focus on like connecting people with providers. So in Georgia, that's um, GCAL, the Georgia Crisis Access Line, is a great resource to be able to use. The National Suicide and Prevention Line um, does text, chat, and phone um, resources for people who are in crisis. NAMI, the National Association of Mental Illness, also has um, a resource that connects people with um, therapists and providers across like the different spectrum of needs. Um, so there are some of those. And even the CARES Act packages intentionally built in money for substance use disorders and suicide um, because they hmm. anticipate that um that there was going to be um a worsening of that in all the right like way to go government for having a little <laughs> no i remember i was reading through the cares act one day and i was like oh, okay look at you yeah. um, <laughs> i'm like that's the first good news i heard at all about any of it yeah yes um it's just yeah some some good news Woo! um but uh, and thinking about that and then also like the almost all providers that uh, are doing some form of um teletherapy. So even knowing that a lot of the places that you would normally go to, like calling your insurance company or calling your social worker and trying to connect with a provider who can like meet your needs financially, question like all those, that a lot of them are doing teletherapy. Um, I started a referral guide in Georgia of folks who are doing teletherapy. Um, and the, the shortened link was just um, bit.ly slash Tele um, referral, so T E L E R E F F E R A L. I mean, it just has like a kind of like compiled list of people who are taking like new clients and doing teletherapy. Um, and then the things like Psychology Today actually has a banner for everyone who's doing teletherapy. And you can search and like go through Psychology okay. Today and it kind of like match you with somebody who's a good fit. So there are different resources at that level, but then there's a lot of like home based and like coping resources that people are doing. Who might not be in a place where they want to seek tele like therapy or teletherapy right now, um, but who want to be able to kind of bolster um, their ability to cope with all of this, you know, uncertainty. So okay, that's awesome. And so I'll I'll do my best to look those up. But I may ha ask you to send me some of those uh, resources so that I can post them. Um, this will be this interview is on on YouTube, so I'll I'll post that. All that information will be below in the description. Um, what are some red flags for people to look for in themselves or in their uh, shelter and place mates that I don't know if people are sheltering in place anymore? I am. But um, what, what are some things we can look for to be like that you need to get help, like leave the house and go get help or call 911, go get help? Yes. Okay. Really good. Um, really good question, Jill. And I'm going to start across the lifespan because I think that these red flags look different based mm. on like age. Um, and this question often comes up for people with um, children or, you know, siblings or older people, uh, like their parents who they're looking out for. Okay. So at the youngest age group with children, you might just see regression, a lot of irritability and acting out an increase in meltdowns and tantrums. Mm. Um, those are going to be signals that that child is struggling. So rather than looking at it as resistance or defiance, being able to meet them on their level, find age appropriate ways to engage with them in conversations, utilizing some of the resources that are available about talking to your child about COVID. We're at the point where it's really important for people to be able to have that conversation with their children because they're sensing something's off, their whole life has changed significantly, and there's developmentally appropriate ways to have those conversations. Um, up to school age children um, as well, you might see similarly um, change in eating, change in sleeping behaviors, um, change in 
just again, some regression, um, irritability and anger. Those are all things that you wanna make sure that you're paying attention to. Um, prevention and early intervention is always better than waiting for a crisis point. And it can't hurt to do a conversation and a consultation with somebody if you have concerns that your child's behavior has changed. Okay. Um, up into adolescence, this is often, like pre-adolescents and adolescents are the sort of hidden sufferers often. Um, and they often get misinterpreted when they're really in crisis. Um, and I think about them all the time in this um, crisis because a lot of the people who I've spoken with, my clients, my friends, they're like, my team's doing fine. Like they didn't really like going to school to begin with. They're maybe like more quiet, but overall they're doing fine. Um, I definitely think you need to keep a your eye on your adolescent um, because as soon as you kind of like probe that and peel that back, you're like, they didn't get to, you know, they're graduating senior. They're not going to graduate. Didn't get to say goodbye That's to- heartbreaking haven't like if they're if they're doing fine like something else is going on um so definitely looking for um being able to make sure that you're carving out time to check in on them um and making sure that you have activities that can help build them their healthy coping skills um because if they are on their screens all day if they're not getting outside if they're not eating if they're not showering um if they have changes in mood um that you just might not be seeing because it's happening quieter um like a lot of times people are like you guys have have really little children so you are we see it though like whatever mm -hmm. is happening like we clearly see it oftentimes there's a parallel in adolescents need they need the same sort of like support connection um, conversations it just expresses a lot differently um, so definitely looking for signs of um, of depression and anxiety um, and crisis for adolescents um, and and monitoring yeah if they are yeah if significant things have changed um, yeah, the big things are, you know, sleep, food, um, mood. Um, you're expecting some variability, but just engaging in conversations about it, keeping an eye on it. Yeah. Um, as you get into adults, um, those those factors of withdrawal, um, being seeing change and mood again. Um, if the um, any sort of, for especially for um, suicide risk, signs of like hopelessness. Um, feeling, uh, reporting a, like a desire to kill oneself or not be around anymore. Mm -hmm. um, ask and like feel that you can connect somebody with resources if that shows up. Um, using Being able to utilize something like the crisis line, that would be a time to reach out. And a lot of people are concerned about, okay, if I do, if I, you know, have the suicidal ideation, if I'm in crisis, if I need some stabilization, am I going to get really sick? Um, and one of the things to know is that there are like really intentional protocols in place in the hospitals that are used to dealing with psychological crises. Um, they all have um, done really um, thorough um, like plans for responding to COVID-19. So don't hesitate okay. to get care or support that you need out of fear that um, you'll be in a general hospital or general emergency department. Um, they have completely different protocols. That's really, really helpful information um, because I think everyone's like avoiding the ER like the plague. Yeah. But, but if you need, okay, that's really great. Um, is there anything, okay, well, two, two last questions. First question is, as you mentioned, this is this like gigantic macro trauma. We're all experiencing it in our own ways. And a lot of people don't have the mental space to hear how other people are suffering. They're just kind of like, I'm in this. Um, how do you approach that with people? How do you start the conversation, crack people's brains open a little bit to be like, yeah. get out, getting outside their own mm -hmm. world of, of suffering? 
or do you even try? Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that, um, that one of the biggest disservices we've done is we've tried to expand people's um, views to thinking about others and others' life experiences and ways of knowing is that we have made it seem like it's something that's in the corner that you do is almost a charity project, like altruistically or um, like from the sort of I'm a good person standpoint. But like, and I think that that's important. But even more than that, like part of what I would say to people is that we know that engaging in these conversations ultimately is good for you. Like, it's good for you. It's good for the like organizations that you're a part of and lead. It's good for like things like, you know, just for you know capitalism, productivity, innovation. You know, like out like positive outcomes and markers. Um, so oftentimes people think that there's almost this paradoxical impact that think people think if they engage with others that it will be draining or that it will add to their stress and strain if they're taking that empathetic perspective but what we find is that there's that paradoxical impact that it actually refuels them um, so that being able to engage with and think about other people it leads to better health outcomes better mental health outcomes for you as an individual um, and it doesn't have to be big like oftentimes people imagine that it has to be something lofty and you know heroic um, but the idea of even just taking a moment to as you're engaging in a conversation on social media to pause and hold like what we call like this dialectic balance like being able to see it as both and. So as you feel that temptation to like double down on your own stance, like mm -hmm. to pause and breathe and be able to put yourself in the situation if you imagine that you were the person who was having the conversation. And oftentimes, like especially on things where we can't see the other people, we imagine them as like the lowest common denominator. But um, one of the exercises that I do with my students is they have to interview somebody who has a fundamentally different viewpoint than they um, on a point that they care about, like something that they care about deeply. Um, and that their goal is to then, they then debate with another person the point that isn't their own based on like the conversations that they had with people who are different than them. Oh, interesting. Like part of it is like the, you, the, and one of the things that I say is when you're imagining this conversation, when you're taking this empathetic pause to imagine somebody who has a vastly different world experience, life experience than yours, imagining it as somebody who you have respect for, who you think is a good person, who has a good heart, who is like, um, you know, who is doing their best. Um, and then taking that empathetic pause to imagine it in that way. Because like when we go back to that othering we were talking about before, people often try to think of that othering in abstract, non-human terms. And that's where we see a lot of dehumanizing of others like, and making them less than. But when you add their humanity back in, and when you say like, and it's a hard thing to hold, you can almost feel the tension in your mind as you're trying to hold it when you're like, this is something that I don't believe at all. And in fact, in some cases, I think if the other person feels differently than me, they must be a monster, right? Like they must be horrible or that they're trying to attack or undermine something that's sacred to me. Um, but when you hold it and you're like, okay, what if I imagine that there are uh, like billions of people on earth and billions of different experiences of this world and somebody is having this vastly different experience that I know nothing of and I'm trying to imagine how they might approach, they might see, they might hold this situation, um, that it can um, be a really sort of, it can just add different um, perspectives, it can increase empathy, it can be, help that like feeling of like constant like us versus them like you always gotta have your dukes up like mm -hmm. and 
creates the space too where you can have really creative problem solving because we know it's never going to be the pendulum swing one way or the other it's going to be somewhere in this gray space and like on polarizing issues like should we stay at home until there's a vaccine all the way to let me out right now there's somewhere in the gray where the answer lies and the more that we're able to like engage with that and the deeper that we're able to get into that then we're going to come up with solutions and creative thoughts and ways to respond to this that are healthy and sustainable yeah so it's not about like guilt shaming people for wanting to be like not being able to have the bandwidth for it. It's not about guilt. It's like, this can actually help you. Yeah. Not like you shouldn't be stressed about your own life, but engaging in these thoughts about what's happening outside in the world can actually help you. Yeah. That both. And we talk about yeah. it. You can think about your life and you can have maybe even just a teaspoon of time or mental energy open up in that moment. But like, and it can be that you're continuing to strive to take on others' perspective and incorporate that into your worldview. I had um, my, my landlord sent a, uh, my toilet was leaking and sent a plumber over on Wednesday and he shows up at my house yeah with no mask, no gloves. He's carrying like an old dirty pail of like, um, Clorox wipes. And like, he's like, I'm here to replace your toilet. And I, I didn't even know he was, yeah. I don't, there's not really great communication with my landlord. So, yeah. um, I'm, and, and, and like, I was like, where's your mask and your gloves? And he was like, I don't have them. And I yeah. was like, like I always have people take their shoes off. So I was just like, and then like his phone rang and it was a Leonard Skinner song. And I was like, yeah. Oh my God. You know? And so there was this total othering of like, yeah. I'm better than you. You're this man who came into my house without your things. And so it was really, you know, I, it was very easy for me to jump into judgment of him and, 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 and dismay that he would show up without these things. Yeah. Um, health wise, I do think it's an issue, but you know, the, his ringtone informed all everything I needed to know about him evidently you know like I, I like ended my judgment there and he is who he is so it's just a very weird situation that I was in but but I, I learned a lot just from talking to you about that you know someone within my own racial identity but certainly at least appears to me not not in a maybe a different intellectual or or political mm-hmm. my my perception of that was real easy for me to jump into judgment there Oh, heck yeah. No, I mean, and it happens like to all of us all the time. And like when I'm talking with um, my friends and, you know, because I'm I'm an academic, I'm surrounded by like, you know, people who think about things in a very specific way oftentimes. I mean, there's a lot more diversity within academics than people think, but still like they approach it in a different, a specific way. And they often come from a specific life experience. Um, And often like I have the conversation, I'm like, did has anybody ever convinced you to change or come closer to a way of being by like looking down on you, shaming you and telling you how much of an idiot you are and like disregarding your life experience? Like, no. Like, so even from like that selfish standpoint, if you want to create change, the best way to go about doing it is like through empathy. Like, yeah. like nobody, there's very, I mean, we saw that we, we just don't see behavior change. I talk with like my physicians who I work with all the time. And like, as we're talking about like motivational interviewing, um, and they talk about like, yeah, they, if they don't want to die, they should stop doing this thing. And I'm like, everybody knows cigarettes like kill you now. Like that's not news anymore. So you like shaming and like, you know, telling somebody how much of an idiot they are for doing it. It, it like, if that was going to work, like, it right. 
but yeah so like the idea of if you want to like create change like you're always gonna be able to do it much more effectively from like a relational standpoint I mean and I know that that's my approach like I have other people who I love who are like nope my job isn't to like nanny or babysit people's emotions and I'm in a place of like anger and activism which I think is legit too everybody has to approach it as who they are and my approach is always kind of like yeah if you're trying to create sustainable change oftentimes it is from that space of being like okay like this worries me that you're like you know my like how can I learn what is going on with you in a way that will help me to potentially create some change for us together, both in you and in me. That's beautiful. I love that. Is there anything about race that has gone unsaid in this interview that you would like to share? Um, yeah. Yeah. Race. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. And I mean, I think especially right now, like with the media's focus on, um, you know, like the impact, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black folks. Um, one of the things that like that is just like an enormous point of pain for me personally, of course, like for so many reasons. Um, and I, one of the things that stri strikes me is I think that these conversations when we talk about race have to be paired with action. Because like the sort of like repeated microtrauma of just being told like that, you know, your people are at higher risk and dying or um, or are not giving be given the same quality of care has to be paired with okay then what like so what does that mean mm -hmm. how respond and not getting comfortable and acclimated and desensitized to that because the more that it happens the more that it said it can just create that othering again where you're like the whole purpose of this is to create like this separation but if it's them saying we're seeing this but why like a big question to me is like okay in atlanta um if i'm like do you think that it's coincidence that we're seeing these higher rates and the people who are delivering your mail taking your trash like delivering your food getting your groceries in the grocery store, like every of these like essential workers without the personal protective equipment happen to be black or from lower socioeconomic statuses oftentimes like this isn't a coincidence like we have to take this and then not just keep it and the idea of like okay then it's an individual level issue that's um, in some ways of oftentimes like placing the blame on folks but thinking systemically what is going on that would make this happen at a higher rate um, what do we need to think about how do we take this information and strategically invest resources time expertise and energy to correct it um, so I think that ongoing that kind of mental health strain it it really adds up like over time if it's not addressed um, and then also thinking again about access to care like in came again like, how that shapes then getting the support and even knowing that there is support that is informed and speaks to all these different elements of identity that there are providers who are eager to excite it and like creatively trying to think about how can we meet more people where they are as who they are every mm -hmm. day yeah. and that's one of the things I'm hopeful about in the future is that we're taking a lot of what we learned through this crisis, like accessibility and care, like telehealth regulations got really very much so opened up in ways that I hope are sustained because they're fantastic in terms of making our services more accessible to communities that before we were just saying, oh, we can't reach them. Like, you know, we can't do it. Yeah. I'm hoping that we continue to advocate for and lobby to maintain that access and resources. That's great. I mean, a lot of the conversation has been like, oh, because because black people are poor. 
mm-hmm. because black people don't have whatever, but it's like, no, 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 no. They're not inherently poor. It's not, it's not because they're black. It's because of racism. Yeah, you're like, you're like small detail you're missing. That it's, it's like, let's, let's not forget. Yes, that's sort of the reality of what we're seeing for some communities. It's obviously not all, but, but like every one of us plays into this systemic issue that is causing these inequities and these, this lack of access. Me sitting in my home, you know, like I play into it too. It's not, it's, it's blame, but it's not because it's, it's, if you recognize it, then you can take part in it. But the, the othering of I'm not the racist one, they're the racist one. That's, I think a big part of the problem too, is not knowing, not acknowledging your role in what may be causing, um, what may be causing these issues. Um, so, okay. How can people work with you? How can people find you? Are you on social medias, um, websites, all the things? I'm so bad with social media, <laughs> but I do, I have a website. So um, my website is, um, for my practice is www.onwardandoutward.org. Um, our practice is Onward and Outward Psychotherapy. Um, so if you wanted to reach out by that, like my practice is actually doing like free wellness consultations during COVID. So just to anybody who needs it can do like teletherapy consultations for 30 minutes. Um, so if you need resources, you just need to check in with somebody, please utilize that. That's why it's there. We really wanted to try to lower as many barriers to care as we could. Um, and yeah, so that's how you would start reaching out to me. There's contact form and find me, but yeah, so I really appreciate though being able to have this conversation. Of course. Well, thank you so much for bringing your expertise here. Um, there's so many layers to all of this. And like the more people I talk to and interview, the more I'm learning and, and um, realizing just how, how far we have to go. But it's, it's, there, there's, there's a lot of work that's already being done. And I think just starting to have awareness, even if you, you like don't know. I mean, I spoke to a black woman the other day who did not know the term microaggression, which I thought was very interesting. She lives in Alabama. So yeah. like everyone's at different levels of, 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 yeah. understanding of the systemic nature of, of what actually goes on rather than just experiencing it without having terms for it sometimes. And, um, I hope that people find this interview, uh, helpful. I certainly did. And I can't wait to put it out there. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Dr. Mm-hmm. Janelle Pfeiffer. Um, and thank you for all these resources. I will be posting them in the show notes. So, um, there's a lot of great stuff for people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jill. This has been wonderful. And I'm hoping that like, yeah, more people come in and join like this process. It's like, it's good work. And we're we're looking for people to be a part of it together. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.